everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a doof media podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward while those return to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman, his face black, his eyes red. Scott, the river Scott, in winter. Darmok. And Jalad, at Tanagra. Darmok and Jalad, on the ocean. So, that's... I don't know if anyone's going to get that, man. That's fine. We're not going to explain it. <laughs> okay, let's move on. Uh, this is the weekly podcast where Matt and I eagerly dive into Wildbo's world of poop collecting, terrible greenhouse patios, and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial. This week, we continue with ARC 14 breaking, covering chapters 14.4 and 14.5. Victoria and company meet up with some old friends and head to Earth Shin. What was supposed to be a friendly conversation and PR mission quickly becomes something else, as the Shinners make Gary Nieves look like the world's number one Cape fan. Meanwhile, Victoria is handling being around her sister super, super well. Matt, what did you think about these two chapters? Well, these were awesome. We continue the trend, seemingly, of breaking being a very dialogue-heavy arc. And once again, it is a kind of dialogue which is extremely tense. There's a very new kind of tension, uh... And I'm loving it. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It's this year. Like, I think that it's a it's a pair of really interesting chapters because, like, I think we ended 14.3 with the, the idea is like you're going to have to go see your family. And we don't really get the Amy interaction until very the end of two chapters later. Right. So we spend. A cha- almost a chapter and a half building to this, building to this interaction, building to this moment where she's caught in a in a room with these people. And I think I think that build is so wonderful. And yeah, I, I, the, the second chapter in particular, 14.5, like worked on me so well. I was just knocked, knocked over by how good some of the stuff in this chapter was. Yeah, it's extremely intense for being, you know, basically dialogue, right? Right, right. And, there, there's been no action in this, uh, in this, this arc so far. Yeah, you know, and it's it's funny because you 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 were being sarcastic when you said that Victoria's handling being around her sister super well, um, but it's interesting because at the beginning of you know toward the beginning of the story, for most of the story, uh, it would be very difficult to contemplate or or to believe that Victoria would willingly put herself in this position the way she she has here, right? And yeah, and she's actually thinking things to herself like I wanted to face, you know, my fears the the way the way my teammates had, which previously it's been like she either wants to avoid it at all costs or she basically kind of had to in a few previous situations. Yeah. And this time she 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 put herself in the situation on purpose and it's hard for her. It really is. But I think it's uh, it's really cool that she was able to get herself to that place. Yeah, I I, I think you're right. I think we need to give her credit for that where we can. Yeah. Um, All right. So let's get on into things. Uh, Announcements. The fan art contest is over for this quarter. The winner is a piece of art shared by. Should I do should I do a drum roll? How do we want to do this? uh, Yeah, do do a drum roll. That'll sound really good. That's that sounds great. That's 
Excellent. You gotta read the thing while I'm doing the drum Phoenicia. Phoenicia. Phoenicia or Phoenicia? I don't know. And it's a beautiful piece of art. It's a black and white image featuring Sveta and Victoria. I, See, I, I think I think you might think that like the winner was sh- this this art was shared by Phoenicia, but the name of the art is shared. That is the name oh. of the piece. Thank you for clarifying. <laughs> the name of the art is shared. Yes, and it is by Phoenicia. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a beautiful artwork. We're looking at it right here in our script. Um, congratulations, Phoenicia, Phoenica, whatever. Congratulations. Uh, I I absolutely love this artwork. Yeah. And of course, we do have a runner up, though, Matt. Runner up is called "You Can Come Home Anytime" by Number Wangman, <laughs> and it, it's a really cool. Um, I, I love the style of it. It's Danny uh, telling Taylor she can come home anytime as she storms off. With her enabler in chief, Lisa, uh, coaxing her away from her loving home into a life of crime. Yeah, it's a great piece. Great pieces all around. Uh, no Ashtoria uh, artwork at all, Matt. None of it. Like I was shocked. I was shocked. I couldn't yeah. believe it. I'm wondering if this is one of those situations where everyone else just assumed that they were like all going to be Ashtoria, you know, meme yeah. submissions but no there was zero so yeah I, I agree um so you can check out these those two winners as well as all the other entries um at, at, at the link in our show notes that'll take you over to our webpage where we'll show all the artwork congratulations to the two of you we will be in contact with you guys very soon uh, about uh getting your winnings over to you via email so just look out for those emails from us and uh once again i love doing these i think it's so fun and i look forward to seeing what you guys do next quarter yeah, everyone remember the in in these contests the the first prize is a hundred U.S. dollars. Yeah, and one runner up is twenty five dollars. So we should switch um, that over to doof dollars. Doof. Exchangeable <laughs> at a doof store. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> All right, let's get on into the chapter. Okay, let's do it. All right, fourteen dot four, and we begin with the heroes bringing in their damage control in response to, well, everything that happened last week. Breakthroughs <laughs> damage control is Kenzie. Which is just a terrible sentence. Oh, good. Yeah. They they travel to what is basically a safe house in the abandoned area of town near the portals to meet with the wardens who've brought Natalie. Victoria wonders if Natalie is part of handling breakthrough, uh, but shortly after, Miss Militia says that it's because the denizens of Shin might be happier with a non-parahuman face around. Poor Natalie, always being pulled into the <laughs> the scariest shit. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's funny because. Victoria's like, I can't possibly imagine why she's here. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. got to be for us, right? No, yeah. no, it's not. Uh, yeah, so this is, for all intents and purposes, a bridge chapter. And, and what I mean by that is, I mean, the main point of this is is just to transport us both literally and figuratively from the end of the previous tension, which was the, the whole conversation with Gary, to into this new tension, the meeting and, and subsequent Dallin reunion that's going to occur on Shin. And I was thinking about this a lot because I could see a world in which this book or a book like it would cut this, right? It would cut immediately from the end of 14.3 is like, oh, your parents want to see you. And then 14.4 in this hypothetical world starts with them walking through the portal into Shin and we move right into that second tension. I could see a world in which that happens. But I think that the the way Wildbo doesn't do that here is actually one of the things that makes his works as successful as they are. Um, because like 
I think in this case, Wilde was using the length and this bridge chapter to stretch out the tension, right? We have this looming thing coming up, this meeting with Amy, this meeting with her mother, like this, this going to Shin. And, and because we have this chapter to really just stretch that tension out as far as we can, um, it really builds it up. Like, like it, it, it's like she's sitting in this anxiety for almost a chapter and a half be- before she gets locked into that greenhouse. And I just feel like the fact that we took the time, the fact that the book took the time, and they, this is a long book, like these Wild Bill writes long stories, but in moments like these, I think they use that length as efficiently as possible to just sit us in that anxiety. And it helps build that tension up. You feel a little more because you're slowly walking towards it just as Victoria is slowly walking towards it. Yeah. I mean, it also gives him a lot of time to set up all of the threads that are, that are required to make it as awesome as it ends up being right. Like I, I can't even count off the top of my head how many characters are traveling with them to Shin, right? Like they, they yeah. could have left off, they could have left out like Vista or, or like they could have not brought all of Breakthrough, right? Like I think, I think sometimes, sometimes the, the actual move you want to do is you want to bring one or two people and focus on them, right? But yeah, I think that Wildbo is really good at setting up complex situations with a lot of people and having it work out and not feel like overly busy. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and I think that that that's a good point, because one of the things I think this chapter specifically do, is doing is doing some Kenzie shit. There's a lot yeah. of Kenzie stuff in this chapter. And you would think in this in this bridge chapter where we're moving us from Victoria dealing with Gary to Victoria dealing with Shin and Amy, um, there wouldn't be a lot of time for some other stuff going on. But under the surface of all this, all this anxiety related to Victoria's interaction coming conversation and interaction with her sister is like these Kenzie red flags like popping up constantly throughout the chapter they're everywhere and I mean even even here like the start of this chapter declares this almost the Kenzie red flag chapter because the the opening words are like we brought in Kenzie like our our crisis management here she is she's an 11 year old girl and now we're gonna like systematically like show how maybe not good this 11 year old girl is doing yeah how maybe you shouldn't be putting this kind of pressure on her possibly right right. yeah yeah so speaking of uh the uh, the other people who are present we've got golem vista and miss militia victoria conspicuously can't meet miss militia's eyes and we we don't really know why right like we we get snippets of stuff like she met my eyes that vague shadow loomed closer and i looked away and I love how the text kind of leaves us a, a while to figure out what's going on here. Because, um, like, all we really get for now by way of clarification is is Victoria, like, single sentence saying Miss Militia had been there. And, and even that is not, like, there? What? And, like, yeah, yeah. You, can, you, can, you can remember, right, if you, if you think about this book for hours a week like we do, you can remember <laughs> what that means. But, right. but uh, like, she's, she kind of refuses to, to make the connection until later. She, yeah. she does later, though. Well, and the thing that I love about it, too, is like that statement, Miss Militia had been there is is in her head, right? Like this is her this is her in her mind's eye and her her internal narrative, her internal dialogue talking to herself. And even there, she can't bring it up. Like, yeah. it's not like it's not like she's talking to someone else and she doesn't want to say the words. Right. This is literally she doesn't even want to think it. She's avoiding thinking it to herself. Um, this is not this is for nobody but her. And she can't even do it there. And I think that's like that's something you kind of forget, I think, at times when you're reading these books that like we are we are in we are in first person perspective. We are in someone's head when they say things like that. They're not doing it for our sake. (laughs) They're doing it for their sake. Yeah. 
you know, she can't even bear to to make that connection, right? Yeah. That's one thing this book does so well. I mean, we've talked about it a, a plenty, but the way that it portrays kind of the the way we flinch away from things in our own thoughts right. via text. I've never seen anything that does it better. Yeah, and 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 I mean, it's it is it's so accurate, and I I catch myself doing it, and. I don't know if I've ever put the word I'm like, oh, I'm really Victoria eating it. But now I'm going to do that. Like that, like everyone has moments where they like just connect dots to a random memory they don't want to think about, be it like an embarrassing thing you did years ago. And then you're like, oh, my God, remember when I did that thing? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or and, yeah, I mean, or or something, something traumatic or painful. You you it, it, it flows exactly the way. Right. Exactly the way Wadlow describes it here. It's yeah. And you, you like you take like you turn the wheel as hard as you can away from that right the second you make that connection to that memory you're like nope and you try to push away from it as as quickly as possible yeah it's great um i i really i really love victoria in this early part of the chapter because like it's clear that she's not doing well right like she's dealing with this she describes it as this vague shadow looming like looming into her field of vision and she does what Victoria does in those moments. She's like, okay, what can I focus on? What can I focus on? That's safe Uh, fashion. Yes. Fashion. And she like goes into these really in-depth discussions of Vista golem and miss militia's costume. She dives into those discussions of their costume. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I didn't notice that, but that's absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that she, she points out that golem doesn't have the like fan or the skirt that he, so I wonder if he has some other solution. That was just kind of a tangent. or, Or maybe like, he's specifically presenting himself as, as nonviolent here. Like he's not going to use his power. So he took the skirt off. I don't know. I don't I like know. The, yeah. I like that thought. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the thing that I love about this though, is that even in her, even in her attempt to like push away and like focus on something that's safe, that is, um, that is the costumes. She still like takes the time to note the gold morning armbands. Like she says, Vista and Melissa, Miss Militia wore armbands. Golem had the emblem marked on one of his biceps. So this is the, they've got new costumes. They've got new looks, but the past is still there looming just like that vague shadow. Right. I think that's so it, it's so fascinating to me that she she jumps into that. And because we don't get that pointed out every time. Right. Like it's not every time we see characters that were born that were there for gold morning that we point out the badge they're wearing but i i think when we do it's specific and here it's like it's like here's the the past here's the bad thing looming over the good thing even even as you're trying to distract yourself um just that that stuff just keeps coming back i like that yeah that's a really good point it's it's interesting that she points it out here and doesn't normally yeah and and it's a it's a cool idea right like especially here the connotations of wearing that armband are so muddled, right? Like if you're right. a parahuman and you have the armband, you're basically saying, yeah, I was one of the people who helped save the world from Scion. You're also communicating, hey, remember when the world was almost destroyed because of <laughs> Waves Hands parahumans? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's true. So in this in this particular context, it's particularly muddy because these Sheen people are like, I like they they don't seem to have any any real appreciation for the fact that gold morning was averted by parahumans they're just like no yeah wipe them out basically yep at least some of them so we learn a lot about gene on the course of um you know the this chapter right like is that I think, how i'm supposed to pronounce it uh, apparently it's closer to sheen than it is to shin i'm, but, I'm not um, gonna remember that that's, I, it doesn't matter like like i i've just accepted that we're gonna say things the way we're gonna say them <laughs> Um, but anyway, uh, like I like that this, this chapter does a lot of legwork in terms of setting up 
what we should expect when we get to Sheen so that when we get to the next chapter, we're just kind of there. There's the, the, they can focus on the dialogue and kind of the weirdness of what's going on with the dialogue, which I think is really important because if it, if if we waited to learn this stuff until we got to Sheen, then it would be too much. It would be overwhelming. It would be fantasy syndrome of too many too, too many new things and you you don't care and it's yeah. just it's just weird i think it um, would hurt the tension a little bit it would cut it um I, I think you're right i think that's another that's another thing that this bridge chapter helps us do is it gets that out of the way so when we're there we can sit in the tension and not cut away to and this is the story of the land bridge and this is the right. story of yeah i think you're right yeah speaking of bridges to learn about this land bridge between between i guess eurasia and north america um on on sheen so yeah. that's cool yeah, I, the thing I, I I like most about this is like Rain kind of once again jumps into the audience surrogate moment here where they're like, oh, the, the blah, blah, blah land bridge. And he's like, I don't what I don't know what that means. Yeah. <laughs> like, like he gets to ask the questions because we can't. And it's like a, it's a, it's I mean, audience surrogate characters are really important in stories like this, especially stories where they're creating whole other worlds. So um, Rain is very perfectly slotted into that position, I think. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so I love Miss Militia's approach here and just her whole character in general, because like she's noticing that Victoria is freaking out, especially every time she says the name Amy, because Victoria doesn't say anything. She yeah. doesn't she doesn't say don't say that name. She's just she's just ostentatiously flinching. I think mm-hmm. the text doesn't say that either. We just have we just have Miss Militia noticing something. And and uh, Hannah says is there a way you'd prefer me to refer to her, her old cape name, her old name, her name that she goes by when, her, when with her father? Doesn't matter, I said, but thanks for the option. Amelia Claire Lever negotiated the peace, but neglected to mention any problems or issues in controlling her power. <laughs> so it's like Victoria's like, I like, like, no. And then she and then and then Miss Militia immediately proceeds to say like the most ridiculous like i mean it's not ridiculous right it's her it's her full name but it's like it's so far away from the way victoria thinks about her that it actually i think serves the function that it that that miss militia intends it to yeah i mean it's it's remarkably astute of her to even even in victoria's like no it doesn't matter is to pick the name that is as as far removed from her any relation to victoria as possible yeah. not her old hero name when she was with in the team with victoria not amy the name when she lived with the family no no and it's her full name right it's not just amelia it's amelia claire laver like it's it's the full formal name it is it is so uh depersonalized and and removed it's it's great it's a great little beat of characterization first of all that she would notice and ask and then second of all that she would be um observant enough to to pick something that i think is probably probably out of all these names is the easiest for victoria to handle yeah yeah absolutely and and she just does it without really she's not like victoria's not really um helping her out in 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 terms of dealing with the situation but miss militia's just can't gonna handle it right she's yeah. the hero she's i think it awesome. also i think it also kind of level sets maybe what the warden's opinion of her is right now you yeah. know like she's not we're not calling her panacea right we're not calling her her hero name anymore she uh-huh. is not a hero anymore we see her as the name she uses when she's around her villainous father right so it kind of gives you an idea of maybe what other people think of amy yeah right they're also not calling her the red queen which is probably a yeah, good move at this it's point. probably a good call yeah, yeah right. is anyone calling her that besides uh 
Dot, who is mysteriously missing? I don't know. I mean, I am, but um, <laughs> yeah, where is Dot? She's probably... I don't know. She's probably going to show up, though. Probably. Uh, so just, I love how Tristan objects to the quarantine procedures that they're going to be subjected to. Yeah. I'm glad you stopped to talk about this. Cause I mean, there's funny bits in here, right. About the idea that like you have to, you know, collect your poop and bring it with you. Um, you have to, you, you, you have to fast for a little bit. He's not cool with not eating. Um, but there's this, I mean, there's this bit again with the shots, right. And this is the second time we've circled back around to Tristan's issue with needles, um, his fear of needles. And uh, we were talking about this in the, the Doof Discord the other day, and I, f- I forget who it was, so apologies for not giving you credit, but someone pointed out the idea that, like, well, um, Tristan, you know, he's during his trigger event, he's, he's, was, he stabbed his brother. Um, while they were fighting, he was being choked by Byron, and he stabbed him. And then, of course, Byron's, uh, while Byron was at some of his lowest points in their early life or their early part of their cape life, he was self-harming by stabbing himself. So, like, it's not too outlandish to think that he developed a, a, an uncomfortableness with the feeling of being punctured uh, by both of these memories that kind of track onto him. And, and I just really like that as like a, you know, a consistent character beat that comes out in this new, interesting way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and it's it's fairly it's fairly minor, right? Like it's not right. like he can't get the shots. He's just like really not happy about it. And, and it and it definitely kept him from giving blood um, to uh, to Sveta right. um, previously. Yeah. And I wonder I, I wonder if we're building to anything with this, because like a couple times within pretty rapid succession. Are we going anywhere with I don't know. I don't know. Just in the back of my head. Yeah, right. No, I, I think it's I, I don't know. I mean, it definitely all seemed very in character for Tristan, even even like being reluctant to carry around a poop bag was, was just very like, yeah, I, I absolutely think that that is a Tristan characteristic to yep, just be yep. like, no, no, no. Maybe he'll just say, Byron, could you please hold my poop bag in the other dimension? <laughs> see that? See why is he even whining? Whichever one of them is phased out could just hold the poop bag. See? I, do you, see? see? Like I know holding the poop bag while you're in the other dimension is not <laughs> actually holding the poop bag, right? Because like, you're not going to feel or smell the bag of poop. However, just the feeling of, I have teleported into my pocket uh-huh. dimension with a bag of shit. Yeah. Is icky. Yeah. For all you know, your power like mushes together all the molecules when it, yeah, when it pushes it you part, back out. It is part of you now. Yeah, <laughs> you know, right. How terrifying would it be if he, fla- if he comes back out and it's gone? Yeah. Where would right. it where'd it go? Where'd it go? I want to know if they've ever like had a bug on their body and then it phased out and then phased back in and seen what happened. Oh god. You this just, is becoming a you tangent. Just did Cronenberg there. Yeah, let's uh let's move on. Yeah. So Victoria's um still on her we need lasting decisive solutions, not more band-aids kick. And this militia is like, uh, well sorry, this this mission probably isn't gonna be that. Yeah. And I, I really like this. I, I like this a lot. I like the, the way that the book's going with this, because like it, we had this character who in arc 13, she was beaten down and just got so tired of losing or like just get it or eking out a barely counts victory that she was like, I want permanent solutions now. I, I, I this is what I want. And then she said uh, she, she looked at Sveta and she said, here's a place where I can get a, a permanent solution. Let's do it. And then it's like, fuck fuck yeah it worked it worked i did it 
Yeah. She did it worked and she's like, "Okay, so this is this is me now. This is my MO now. It's like I'm done. I'm done with with stop gaps. I'm done with temporary things. I want permanent solutions to problems now." And then she's thrown into this her first real conflict after that and and people are like, "No. Like that's sorry. Like that's it's not going to be that type of mission. Like there, there's what is the permanent solution here? Like there, there's nothing for you here. And yeah. this, this made me think back to this, that idea uh, where we, when we talked to the, uh, sorry, when we asked the question about should Sveta do this. And one person, I, I don't remember who it was, but one person answered something to the effect of just cause you got lucky doesn't mean it was the right choice. Right. And so, so we got this idea that Sveta, um, they made the choice and it worked so far. Right. We don't, it, there's no ill effects of the decision that there was made so far. So Victoria is kind of motivated by that success. But is that a good thing? I don't know. I don't know. Like, like if you start saying I need the permanent solutions, then are you going to push yourself further and further out to get them, even in situations like this one where it doesn't seem like there are going to be one? Right. I, I love that it's Miss Militia who's kind of the, I don't know, foil is the right word here, but but kind of opposite Victoria here because Miss Militia is established as this substantially more mature and, and older, I mean, for whatever, I don't actually know what their age difference is, but she strikes me as being more mature and older, um, like like experienced beat cop type, type cape. Um, and here, her role with Sheen has been as basically an ambassador. And like, that's like the least conclusive job in the world, right? Like when you mm-hmm. think ambassador, you don't think like person who makes bold, sweeping, decisive movements right they're just like no they incremental tiny little little uh compromise after compromise after compromise nobody ever just wins uh in this in this situation right so it's like a very miss militia just seems like someone who who really doesn't have this bug that victoria has right now this uh we need to fix everything permanently bug because her whole life has been just like you know pushing back the the tide right yeah yeah it's cool i i I'm, I want to see where this develops, right? Like what, what, what role Miss Militia is going to play here? Cause she hasn't been yeah. in the story very much, right? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of points from this general idea that the, the book could really go to. And I, I think, I think it's great to see her. And, and Miss Militia is a character from the old book that was, you know, very, very good, right? Like she was, yeah. she was probably, like you said, she was kind of in Victoria's position back in Worm where she was just just kind of exhausted by this and like just just so tired by feeling like she never made progress and so i think we've seen a, a different a different a more mature side of her you're absolutely right so yeah, yeah. I, I let's let's see where this goes yeah so th- i think it's interesting that at this point victoria and the rest of the team are still being extremely close to the vest with cryptid's real identity yeah i'm not clear on like the number of people that actually do know about it like how much of this did dragon share to like the wardens and everyone else. I don't, I don't know. It, it doesn't like it. Miss militia doesn't give any indication that she is aware, but probably right. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I really don't know. Um, it seems obvious. It seems like she and she and don't, or, or maybe yeah. they didn't before and they do now. And that's why well, they're mad. I mean, we, when they meet him in the next chapter, or is it, I think the end of this chapter, he specifically st- is still calling himself a changer and Victoria yeah. specifically points that out. He's like, he's still keeping up the charade. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, I, I feel like Nieves would have mentioned something about this. Yeah. If, if he had, uh, if that was, if that was public knowledge, yeah. I think uh, he would have, yeah, pulled yeah. that. Yeah. So that's interesting. Yeah. Cause I, I, I don't know why I assumed that it was just 
public knowledge now, but um, yeah, I, I guess know. I should not have assumed that because there's really no indication that it was. So anyway, yeah, just just a just a note that yeah, that's a that's in play. Yeah. So uh, Kenzie watch 2019. Ken, <laughs> uh, text. Kenzie hugged her friend as soon as her arms were free. Oh no. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the weird thing about this is like sometimes we talk about how like Victoria is almost overly overt where um, where uh, <laughs> it's it specifically tells you like exactly what's going on here. And, and Victoria specifically observes it and comments on it and ruminates on it. This is not one of those moments. This goes entirely unobserved from Victoria outside of the physical action itself. Right. Yeah. Like she doesn't say she doesn't make any internal note to herself she doesn't say anything she doesn't seem to be concerned about this it just kind of happens and it's like and i think that continues throughout the rest of this chapter all these these kenzie red flags are popping up and we're not hearing anything from victoria and i think it's just because she's she's too distracted like she's too focused on that looming shadow that's coming and that that she's not seeing this stuff and nobody seems to be seeing this stuff and i'm like guys guys don't you see I agree completely. Yeah, she's her, her head's not in the game. She's gonna. She she may even miss something else important, right? Yeah. Um, it's interesting because I think you've actually noticed more of the Kinsey red flags than I have. But the fact that the first she, thing she does is she hugs someone, which is kind of breaking her rules, which we've been kind of primed to think of that as her backsliding. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. There's a few yeah. other things I think we'll hit as we move on. Yeah. So Tristan remarks that he's alarmed that. Uh, Victoria is talking about permanent solutions for dealing with a sibling. Of course, you can see why he'd be worried about that. Yeah. Um, and Victoria's like, no, 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 that's not what I meant. And Tristan's like, if you say so. Yeah, I mean, and this is kind of the danger of going down that road, right? Of saying, I'm not going to make any choice unless it, it leads to a permanent solution to a problem. When you start saying things, when you're like, we need a permanent solution to Amy... You start using words like that. What does that sound like? And that sounds like things that are troubling, right? Yeah. Um, And and, I mean, like in context of our theme of recovery, this idea of trying to get better. What is a permanent solution to recovering from trauma? Does that exist? And, and, and I'm not even I'm not talking about getting better. Like, obviously, you can get to a point in your life where, where you are better, um, where you are able to, to live with this thing more and, and be a better person. But is there is there a permanent solution? Are you saying that never in your life? It's just like it's just like the idea of is there a permanent solution to addiction? Right. Uh-huh. Is there a permanent solution to being addicted to something? No, there's not like there, there's you learn to live with it. Uh-huh. Um, oh, yeah, well, or or I think reasonable people can disagree on that question, but that that doesn't add any clarity to it. Right. Like that that just means there's no real answer to that question. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it, it reminds me of Sveta's, you know, I want to be her. Right. It's right. It's, it's it's a way of saying uh, a permanent solution would be, oh, I want to be I want things to be the way they were before. And it's like right. well, that I can guarantee you that is the one thing that is not possible. Yeah. Right. And and so, I mean, we look at this and we look at her, this idea of permanent solutions and this is the thing she wants. And I'm wondering, like, if Sveta isn't just cured now. Right. Like if she's not just all better. Yay. Um, how Victoria is going to deal with that? Because she looks at that is like, as finally I did it. Finally, I found a permanent solution to this problem. And that is going to be what I'm going to do everywhere else. And what if that 
in this in this problem we can't have a permanent solution outside of killing your sister um in in this one with sveta it's actually has not solved all our problems like i I, there's there's a lot of room here to explore this idea this idea of permanent solutions to to trauma in really interesting ways and and this this part right here made me really excited for what the book is going to do with that in the future yeah me too and you know it's good that it's it's good that tristan's kind of watching out for her because i think he's he may know where her head is at better than most yeah. of the other people on the team, actually, because he has this exact overlap of, uh, you know, murderous sibling feelings. Yeah. And I mean, we keep going back to this, but this this way in which each member of Breakthrough in their own specific way tie into Victoria and the things that she's going through, I think is it continues to be beautifully constructed for me. Like, I, I think it, it just it works so well. Right. And. <laughs> kind of moved on to the next one now and i just love that the seating chart is textual it's not yeah right right yeah so uh yeah so kinsey remarks that uh, today she's already saved a kidnapped kid uh and her friend candy messed one guy up so bad um but then uh, you know it's fine she demurs that good 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 and and this is another thing that victoria kind of just lets slide she doesn't comment on this at all uh, I mean, yeah, okay, maybe he deserved it, this kidnapper guy. But th- this is these are people that that Kenzie's hanging out with. This is her team, and there's Candy doing going too far again. And it's just like no one seems to be worried about this. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, there's the, here's the question I have for you, and this is the question I think we have to keep asking ourselves throughout this entire arc: Is any of this performative for teacher? Um. I don't think well, well, not not on Victoria's part, and I'm not sure if Kinsey is even. Yeah, did they even go through that? I don't think I, I don't think the book has said that like they brought Kenzie in on their their fake out stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I feel like um, I feel like Kinsey would not be doing that, right? Like, I, like the, the the thing about that line that really jumped out to me was when was when uh, Kenzie said so bad. Like for me, Kinsey always tends to like downplay things that are bad yeah. <laughs> so if she said that it was so bad it must have just been oh i can't even imagine really yeah it's got, it's it's real real bad the yeah, cops didn't yeah. care though so it's fine right right yeah i mean once once again i mean we know that just to say it out loud like uh, kenzie does this thing where if the people that she likes are doing horrible things then that's totally fine yep and they weren't actually horrible things not only totally fine but um that's like what people do right yeah like yeah, that's that's probably laudable in some way yeah. So Vista is here. Apparently she's constantly using her power just to make her costume look cooler, which mm-hmm. is awesome. I also fully, you know, expect that she has like an inch of steel covering every part of her body. An inch, Matt, you got to go bigger than that, like a meter. There's See, that's whole- what I, I, I would expect her to do that if, if I don't if I didn't think weight was a concern. But I'm pretty sure that weight is a concern. But is it? Uh, I thought it was, but. Maybe yeah, not. you're probably right. There seems there needs to be limitations to this thing. Yeah, because otherwise she'd be like um, Chevalier, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Kinda. So, yeah, as Vista warps the team across the city using a rooftop as a shuttle, it's hard to <laughs> it's hard to visualize this, but I mean, well, okay, I actually had a fine time visualizing it. It's just that I'm not sure if I'm visualizing it right. It's a donut. She's she's warping the building across the city basically so they don't have to get off the building and then they just step off the building onto a place across the city it's the donut and then uh, they get to the portal 
Miss Militia gives us a bit of an info dump on Shin as we're traveling. And Wild Bo gets that world building engine revving. Yeah, and I think I think we'll get to this a little bit more in the next chapter, but what this this specific kind of world building, I think, is a little bit different from th- most of the Wild Bow world building I've seen. And I'll say this having only read um, these two books and a very little bit of Pact. Um, most of most of what the world building in these stories has been is like, take our world, add some supernatural elements and then uh, create the world around what those supernatural elements would do to the world as we know it. He's I've never really seen him like just build a world, you know, and, and I think like that, that's that seems to be some of the mus- muscles that are being flexed for the Shin stuff that he's just kind of we're just going to build a world. And this is how this is the customs of the world. We're going to explain it, why they do this, why they act like this, what their history was. And I like it. It's cool. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I think I, I can speak for Twig. Like, that's actually very different because it's not present day. But from the perspective of the characters, this is just how things are. Like, he, he doesn't do the, uh, you know, the, the the old joke of like, Scott, for our visit uh, coming soon, would you like to take a, a locomotive, an aircraft, or a motor vehicle? <laughs> Here are the pros and cons of the three different conveyances. Like, like no, it's just like we, we live in this world together. We... we there's a common base of knowledge and we, and we don't belabor the the features of the world to each other and and the characters in his stories also don't mm-hmm. but here they're traveling to a new world and so they are belaboring the differences to each other because right. it's important that they understand the differences yeah and that's really cool so like you said we this is more like uh, i suppose naked world building because we're we're learning what the actual differences are and that's yeah. that that's cool yeah, so Kinsey uh, kind of uh, out of nowhere tells Byron that she's finished the twin camera she's working on. And before uh, before Byron is allowed to signal approval of this, Swansong checks that Kinsey didn't stay up all night working on it. Byron then gives her a hug, and then this segues into a conversation about Darlene's new name, Kahoot. Yeah, and so uh, once again, we're spending a lot of time on this bridge chapter reminding and reestablishing some Kinsey stuff, right? she says here, no, I didn't stay up all night working on this thing. But the implication is she still was staying up all night, right? Like this this line is like, only if you can say you didn't work yourself to the bone and stay up nights. I didn't. I really didn't. Good. I was working on other stuff that you're still working yourself to the bone and staying up all night. It's just not on this. Right. And everyone's just like, ah, Uh yeah, funny. (laughs) Right. Like, cause Ashley like, like gives her a little fake ear tweak and you know, it's, it's a, it's a funny moment, but also it's like, yeah, she was totally staying up all night. She's right. And she hasn't been sleeping. Yeah. And then the conversation shifts to the Kahoot conversation and it's funny. Like Darlene's name being Kahoot is hilarious. It's bad. I, it's so, it's so terrible. It's hilarious. But we just kind of move on, right? We just like, yeah, no, I didn't stay up all night working on this, but yeah, I'm totally staying up all night. I'm still working myself to the bone. Absolutely. These things are true. Um, we have to remember that Victoria told y- Yamada last, la- not last week, last arc that she's really concerned about what's going on with Kenzie and that Kenzie probably needs some help. And and we're just like, these flags are popping up and it's, I'm just like, nobody's like, it's like the Kenzie red alert, siren is running throughout the entire group and everyone's just like no not kahoot and i'm just like oh my god oh my god yeah my god guys 
right? And I mean, I, this is one of the situations where I'm concerned that she's like using her, her holograms to change her appearance or something terrible like that, you know? Right. Because I mean, just to, and this isn't something that I've kind of said out loud or, or even thought, you know, clearly, but like the threat here is she's found this new group of friends who are not, um, as far as we know, aware of her foibles and are not watching out for her in the way that breakthrough is capable of. They're not providing the the bumper rails for her. Yeah. And, what she's going to do is she's going to try to impress them and, and get what well, I was, I don't know. I don't know if it's get sucked into their vortex or suck them into her vortex, but either way, um, completely lose all sense of proportion and, and backslide completely. Right. And, yeah. and she's so good at hiding, um, issues that that could be happening right now and, and breakthrough wouldn't necessarily know. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and there's so much going on. There's so, t- so much tension here. So many characters, like, we have to go back to this idea that all of our characters are breaking a little bit, right? Like all of our characters are cracking. There's, there's stuff going on and everyone has their own stuff that they're dealing with some tension that they're dealing with there in their own life. And there's kind of an out of, out of sight, out of mind here thing with Kenzie a little bit with the exception of maybe Ashley, but she doesn't have a lens into that as well. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's terrifying. It re- it really is. And we just keep banging this drum and it's yeah. like freaking me out. Well, and it's, it's being played for comedy too. And I do think it is funny. Like I think what, yeah, what's no, funny. I don't want to take away the, I th- it is, it is very funny. We should, we should laugh. The book wants you to laugh at this. Day. It's okay to laugh at this stuff, but under that laughter <laughs> is stuff. Yeah. Well, part of the laughter is, 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 uh, anxiety, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, I mean the next joke, right? Yeah. Like, no, I'm betting she has pictures of everyone on her phone. Not everyone. Kenzie said before pulling off a glove with her teeth so she could manipulate her phone. Her mouth obstructed. She muttered around the glove. Move people. <laughs> That's the thing. Yeah. It's not every, just most of all the. Most everyone. Right? Guys. And, <laughs> and, and, and where your mind immediately goes is she really means most people yes, probably, uh, right? Yeah, she's not. That's not like just a, she's not speaking like figuratively, right? That's, it's probably she's like, well, most is like 78%. So yeah, that, we'll do yeah. that. Yeah. And like, it, uh, once again, nobody says uh, anything. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> mo- most people could also mean, as far as I know, everyone, <laughs> but I might've yeah. missed someone. I'm not comfortable saying everyone. Cause I don't know a hundred percent sure yet. Yeah. But. Yeah. Right. Oh my God. <laughs> Uh, so they reach the portal and, and they pass on into customs and, um, Scott, the interior was red and black checkered floor, red and black checkered floor. Oh, really? The red queen's domain. Mm-hmm. And the name tags are yellows and red, which don't play into the red queen thing quite as much, but, uh, yellows and reds are bringing those colors, color yep, scheme, bringing those colors back the, yep. the warm, fiery light based color. Yeah. The, I mean the, the, the checkered, the checkerboard. Um, yeah. So good. I yeah. mean, that's like going, going into going down the rabbit hole, going into Alice's domain or to the red queen's domain is like, it's perfect. I'm so glad you pulled that out. Yeah. I, I think I passed it over the first read actually, but yeah, it's, it's awesome. I, I, uh, I, I don't like, I don't remember if the, uh, this is just the customs area, right? It's not the whole like place they go to that looks like this, is it? I don't remember. Yeah, I don't think no, so. No, this is, no. this is just, um, yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, yeah. So Vicky and Sveta have this conversation where, uh, basically they're 
they're pointing out that Vicky might need to kind of be pulled back um, if she gets into it too much. And Mm -hmm. uh, they agree that Sveta will touch her left ear as a signal that Victoria needs to walk away. This is so cool because Sveta didn't have ears before. Yeah. (laughs) I I think so. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm pretty sure. I always thought she was a like a literally a face. Yeah, which, I, I, that's how yeah. it's described. And I, I looked at um, I looked at some of the fan art, and most of the fan art agrees it's just face with with tendrils. So yeah, I mean, like this is, and it, neither Victoria nor Sveta comment on this. The fact that the signal is something that literally like two weeks ago you could not have done, like that yeah. just it would have been impossible for you to do. But I like it. It's just like. In in my mind, Sveta's like saying, "Ah, oh, yeah, I can, I can, I can do that signal now." Yeah. And and Victoria's maybe like subconsciously like doing that to treat her, like to treat her as a person. And I just, I, I think it's really great. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I, I don't know if I uh, noticed that as as strongly as you did, but yeah, that's a cool moment. But of course, Matt, the problem with this plan is that we know that Victoria can get um very internal. When it comes to Amy and the darkness that is attacking her mind, right? So while I agree that it's a good idea to have Sveta there, and it's a good idea for Sveta to have a signal uh, in case Victoria is spiraling or something, um, the odds of her like seeing the signal in the midst of the worst case scenario, not great. Yeah, um, and like I'm just reminded of the time when she almost smashed Amy. Uh-huh. And it's like there wasn't time for like a signal there. No, and, and no, like, yeah, like if if Sveta had had a, an ear at that point, she would have been ripping it the fuck yeah, off. Right. And, and there's and there's also times where she just when she gets angry, she's not the most rational person. Right. Like she, she could get a signal to stop and just be like, fuck you. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know. Maybe I, not. Maybe Sveta's the only one that could. Yeah. I mean, it's not a bad idea. Like, I'm not saying like this was this was a dumb idea. I'm just I'm just like that we're pointing out that like, um, I don't know if it's enough. I mean, the dumb idea, in in my humble opinion, is going. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Is is Victoria specifically requested this time? I'm not sure what the um, message was. It's kind of weird because, yeah. So she gets. The wardens ask them to go to help smooth over the events of the Gary conversation because they would probably be the ones to best talk to that because they were the ones there. Um, Her parents message her specifically asking for her to help smooth stuff over as well. So, yeah, I mean, she has been specifically asked to come. Yes. Um, But but to her going is not they're asking me to and I have to to her going is I've got to face my stuff. Because, again, this this permanent solution thing, I've got to face my problems. I've got to go do this. Sveta faced her problems. She got she has a body now. Great. I've got to go do this. I've got to do this so I can get over this stuff. And I don't. Girl, I don't know if you're ready for that yet. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Um, I agree. So at this point, Golem asks Vicky and Sveta if they think Rain would be up for talking with somebody else from a bad background so they can kind of commiserate on their uh horrible people cultiness background it's my favorite part of the chapter i love it to death um i don't know why that it never occurred to me that matching these two characters together is like really smart and great but yeah it is i i can't see how this could be negative for either of them right absolutely yeah like golem is a great dude and i think he could help rain with some of his steam issues and seeing what a person can become 
when they've escaped from this stuff. And then Rain is someone that can relate to him. So it's great. I want them. I want a whole book of these two just going on adventures. I agree. That would be wonderful. I I, I hadn't put it together quite that way that that, like Golem would be a great role model, actually. Yeah. And like by adventures, I don't mean like hero work. I mean, like just like a series of vignettes where they're just doing random shit around the town. Like they're going to a dance club and they're trying to dance with some ladies. Uh Um, They're they're having a cup of coffee and and Golem's trying to help Rain with his love life. Yeah, they're they're like sitting in a laundromat, folding clothes while having a, a discussion of the complexities of guilt and redemption where one was forcibly ra- raised in a in a very violent crime cult. You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Basic, basic buddy stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, when can when can this happen? How do we make this happen? I don't know. I uh, even have a name for it. It's called the hand jobs. Was this uh, was this whole bit just to set up for that or no? Oh, okay, okay, um, okay. But it's a really good name though. They uh-huh. both they both do stuff with hands. Uh-huh. And Rain got that hand job that one time. Yeah, no, no, I, yeah, I got it. That's good. That's good don't, stuff. Don't don't diminish this. It's it's good. It's, I'm proud of no, it. It's really don't good. Don't take I, this I, away from me. I want I want to see this. I agree. I mean, okay. most of what you just said was something that I'd really like to see. <laughs> Oh uh, God! Come on, um, they both there's hands. Golem makes the hands. I get it. And he no, makes... that's that's really good. In fact, I almost wonder if there's some synergy there. Like that would yeah. be cool, right? Yeah. I mean, more more seriously, I I like yeah, hands and and hand tinkering and stuff. Sure, yeah, sure, yeah, jerk. That's what you were talking about, right? Exactly. Yeah. No, I know. Um, okay. You know, I I would just love to stay on the hand jobs <laughs> for longer. Um, but we it's got gonna, it's you're gonna hard. you're. You're going to be, you're going to laugh to yourself tomorrow. You'll just be sitting at work and you'll just chuckle about the hand jobs. I definitely will. You're, mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. So moving on from that. Uh, so here, um, speaking of Kinsey red flags, Kinsey gets a private air supply, uh, which she then hides with her holograms, probably because she's hiding all kinds of other things. So why not? Yeah. Um, and I, this is something I noticed slightly more strongly on the reread. First of all, that something is like, wrong with her enough that she would need a private air supply and then also interesting kind of Chekhov's gun that Kenzie now has her own private air supply which is secret yeah I I I like that I like that a lot um I I think I think you're absolutely right that that's going to pay off in the literal sense that that we're setting up something there but I also I also like it as like a reflection of everything we've been talking about this chapter all these red flags um she has her own air supply. <laughs> like, like that's like, she's like she, her take the physical and make it metaphorical. Right. She's doing, she's so, she's doing so much worse than everyone else that like, we're not comfortable with her physical ability. And so we need to give her, her own air, air supply. Like we're, that's how concerned people are for Kenzie in the physical realm going into this place. But when I was talking about mentally, right. And it's just like, it's terrifying, but yes, yeah. I also do think this is a literal s- specific setup for something. Yeah, right. Um, I, I didn't, I didn't even notice it on that level the first time, but like, yeah, it's, uh, it seems to me, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it really didn't jump out to me until we really, like, I really started breaking down the moments in this chapter where Kenzie is like, Ugh. yeah, <laughs> when you start stacking these moments together, and then you have a moment where we very, very conspicuously attach a breathing device to her that she very conspicuously vanishes. And it's like, Hmm. Uh huh. Yeah. I'm concerned. Yeah. 
so they get they get to Shin now, and it's pretty cool. Uh, you've got a lot of really interesting visual touches that just they don't remind me of anything. That's the cool thing. Like we've got d- guns draped in cloth and, and other strange weapons that Victoria doesn't even really know how to classify. We've got like murals on on walls. We've got like really artistic architecture, often decorated with enormous statues. Um, and like yeah, I guess that that's the 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 best thing I can say for it is. I'm not immediately like, oh, so it's, you know, like Rome. It's like, no, it's like, it's, it's weird. It's, it's yeah, alien, right? It's it different. Is. It's very different. And I love, I love the temperature drop, right? Like this, this moment where they walk in and she says into Shin, once goddesses earth, now Amy's. The temperature was easily 10 or 12 degrees lower than it had been in the megalopolis. And the sky was filled with snowdrifts. It didn't take away from it was a pretty amazing view. But I love this idea that this place is colder. Like we, we were going from a, a place that's cold to even colder, 10 to 12 degrees colder. It, it is like an overwhelming difference. I, I think it's it's so great. It's like, oh, you thought things were bad? Well, guess what? They're going to get worse. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, I like that on a metaphorical level, right? Like it, it also adds to the tone of this chapter and the next chapter because yeah. basically from the time they enter... Uh, I would say from the time they enter kind of the customs area, we just begin ramping up um, this uncomfortable. um, I think she uses the word oppressive later. And that's a great like it's interesting how Wild Bill kind of slips that word in because oppressive then became my word for describing these chapters and their atmosphere. Uh, It's 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 really great. Yeah, it's that it is the tone of these chapters, especially the next chapter. Yeah, yeah. So Vicky describes the five different Sheen factions who are present at the meeting and their interesting clothing uh, from which she tries to infer things about their positions on things and in the world. Basically, she's using her fashion powers to good effect uh, for for some diplomacy. I continue to love how we do this, how Wildbo takes a trait and uses it to... Um, explore the world in from from that specific scope or angle like uh, Victoria Victoria does it Taylor did it in her own way Um, I just I think it's 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 such an inventive way to in the world do descriptions and explanations and 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 ponderings I, I just I keep loving it I keep loving it yeah me too so joining them is uh, Marquis and Spruce and also Amy and Chris that's the weirdest way you've ever said Marquess before, ever. I had to add an extra K sound. <laughs> um, Chris is tall now. He's all grown up, but he still looks uncanny. Basically, by her description, he's more stretched and distorted than he is like actually grown. Yeah, and I want to talk about this as like a representation of Chris's quote-unquote progress or lack thereof as uh, a person. You know, um, and it's it's a little weird because Chris is like reverse of everyone else. Right. Where where Sveta wants to move away from being the quote unquote monster. Chris wants to chase being the monster. Um, but I mean, do you, do you think like this is specifically pointing like what we see from Chris in these chapters is a, a guy who is more agitated, is worse and more confrontational in just about every way. And I just think like this the way he looks is a great telegraph for that, that he's, he's less Chris, like he's, he's, he's backslid in a very specific kind of way. Yeah. I mean, I I would even say, and I don't know if this is the read that that I'm meant to have, but like the fact that he's taking on an adult body better matches, um, lab rat, not Chris. Yeah. Chris is basically 
kid. Like, I mean, he's like, I mean, he's like, he's literally two years old actually, but yeah. But I, I mean, at least like the, the adolescent Chris was closer to who Chris really is on the inside. Yeah. And, and well, he's, and he's yeah. wanting, like, he's wanting to be more monstrous, but he's not, uh, he's not a monster here. Right. Like he's yeah. still a human. He's just a, dis- a distorted, like almost rushed version of what an adult would look like. Right. He's trying to look older now. He's trying to be that, that adult person, but yeah. doing it in ways in which are distorted and, and screwed up almost yeah. as if he's not really mature. <laughs> yeah. He's and forcing all, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I don't think we've seen him in Chris form in, in a long time. Like he was, no. he was pretty much a, he was pretty much changed for, uh, like the entire end of the uh, of the goddess arc, and then he's been changed in like all the pictures that we've seen. So I wonder if there's like a specific reason why he's not changed here. Because um, like it, it, you get the sense if it were up to him, he would just always be changed. So yeah, I, I mean, I wonder this this very anti cape society how cool they would be with a guy in monster form. Yeah, that could be part of it. Yeah. So. Yeah, the chapter ends with a note of extreme tension as Miss Militia kind of gives the group a, a signal and says that um, one of the groups who is on the parahuman side has been replaced and that uh, everybody might need to be ready to fight. Yeah, be ready to use your powers is such a wonderful note to end the chapter on because the, 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 the chapter made specific point that once they got to Shin, even Vista was not using her power to make them get to the meeting quicker. Like she wasn't closing the distance anymore they were they just had to walk it's almost as if like we're not going to use our powers here guys that's the biggest no-no possible and then suddenly it's like uh be ready be ready to be ready to go um yeah and yeah it's 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 great it's just it sets the tone the that oppressive tone you were talking about for 14.5 right i mean i would even say this is an unusually cliffhangery ending because you're like oh god like yeah what's what's gonna happen um, yeah, but it's we've we've talked about this in the show before, but it's cliffhangery in the way in which I like where yeah. it doesn't it doesn't necessarily stop a midbeat. You know, I think I define like the difference between a, a cliffhanger and a game changer, right? Where um, a cliffhanger is just like midbeat, we stop just for fun. A game changer is we we take we've taken what we thought we had and then we've reoriented it based around a new piece of information, and that's basically what this is. It's like we thought we were going to have this relatively calm conversation. It, it wasn't going to be that bad. It wasn't going to go that bad. Uh, they they already agreed to speak with us, and they already agreed to help us. And then suddenly, game change. Yeah, you're exactly right. I, I agree. Um, I guess I guess it felt more like I can't stand to not know what's going to happen next. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean I, that's I mean that's still part of it, absolutely. Yeah, but yeah. it's not it's not like it's not like an artificial like nope, you don't get to see where the sword lands. Like yeah. it's, I'm swinging a sword and cut. No, right. it's it's different. <laughs> that that literally was in a book. Okay. <laughs> um, so fourteen dot five, and this chapter begins with introducing much of what will be a very interesting setting situation and conflict so we're thrown into this without any real preparation along with our character into a situation that we don't really understand and to make things worse everything has to be interpreted and acted out through this weird cultural milieu that we don't understand so like the delegates are all sitting in these weird chairs and there's young scribes writing furiously and it's just really really weird yeah and it, it you're absolutely right that it ratchets up the tension so much more because we're so 
like out of sorts here. Like this would be a tense conversation if it was with a culture we fully understand and our characters fully understood and there it would already be tense. But you take that and you put it in with a culture that's speaking a little differently, that has different uh, different cultural requirements, different expectations, different things that offend you. You put all that in there and yeah, it, it becomes something a whole lot more. It becomes something completely oppressive. Um, and, and our powerful capes are rendered almost powerless. And it's really great. Yeah, well, and, and eventually we kind of find out that they've almost collectively walked into a trap. Like the situation yeah. has been set up to be stacked against them. So, yeah, this is another very complicated conversation chapter. It's I think it's superficially similar to 14.3, which was which was the uh, the big the big confrontation with Nieves. But this is a far different context and a far different execution. And it feels very different. Yeah. I mean, it like it, it <laughs> it's so funny because we had this conversation about Wildbow dialogue after last week and then boom, here's another chapter where he's doing things with dialogue, but it is in a, in a very different way. Um, th- this is, this is different. It's, it has a different goal. Um, it's doing different things. And I really want to focus on that as we go through it, because I, I think it's really a testament to, the skill of a writer being able to kind of shift gears and do two different things around the same thing. I think. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. So Miss Militia's opening position here is that she's brought the heroes who helped bring down goddess and all they want in return for their action is goodwill. But beyond that, we kind of don't understand what's being said. We begin to suspect that it's a Darmok and Jalad type situation. (laughs) Another not going to explain the reference. Um, Should I explain the reference, Scott? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so in, in Star Trek The Next Generation, there's this episode where they encounter this culture where all the words they say are intelligible, but when they speak, it seems to be nonsense. And you should watch the episode, but the upshot is that they're basically talking in like parables and references all the time, such that yeah. if you don't know the references, you don't really understand. But once you figure that out, you can kind of infer things. It's, it's, it's not really what's happening here exactly. It's more like... Um, the content of what they're saying is partially embedded in in wordplay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and much of what and like it makes it difficult to translate because the, like the nuance of what you have said isn't isn't the transliteration of what you said. It it may be embedded into the cleverness of the wordplay that you used. Yeah. Um, and 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 or at the very least, because we're not really sure how this works. It seems like there are there like people are like awarded points or or just like appreciation for speaking more poetically. Yeah, yeah, and I mean this is a perfect example that we've pulled here where Miss Militia saying they don't ask for much goodwill. Will is easy, good is free. Yet goodwill can be the hardest thing to give. Winter climate affords bridges. Is it winter? Ignore the weather. It's chilly in here, and you're just like what <laughs> yeah it's like the only part of that that i'm sure that i got is it's chilly in here where she's responding to, to the tone of yeah. things and everyone laughs at that and yeah. like appreciating her wit and you're like ah. but yeah but it's great because like this is where the writing really shines to me because we talked last week about how gary's argument was something we could poke holes in all day right um it, it's a very standard type of bad faith argument that we related to some real life people in our in our world that use this kind of real life argument and we can easily attack that we can easily be like no they're stupid you're wrong and here's why we have no such context here we're we're, we're still on victoria's side we're still on the side of our, our of 
you know, yeah, capes, there's some capes are bad. Some capes are good. And you probably shouldn't hate all the capes. You probably should work with the people that like helped kill goddess, but there's no, there's no foot. There's no standing here. There's no, there's nothing to, to hold on to because we're, we're entirely powerless. Like Victoria can barely follow the conversation. She's actually does a fairly good job at like catching on to some of the, the cultural uh, norms just by observation. But like basically what has to happen is they have to fully trust Mish Militia, right? Cause she's the only one that has this link. She's the only one. So every other Cape here is rendered completely powerless in this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's, I mean, like that's why I'm fascinated with the role that Miss Militia is taking in these chapters because mm-hmm. she hasn't really been a character much in this story. And now she is the most important one, the most important one. And we don't really like, she knows so much more than we do. And we just have to trust her. We're, we're in the same position as Victoria, actually, right. where we're just kind of like, well, I hope you know what you're doing here. And, and you seem to like she seems very competent, but she also seems very, very worried and, and borderline um, sure that there's going to be violence breaking out. Yeah. And she's doing this signal to Victoria that I love that, like. She never told her about the signal. It's just like Victoria immediately gets gets catches wind of it. The this the. the rapid switching of the weapon thing she does yeah um and i i think that's a really cool beat that victoria is just observant enough to be like okay gotcha gotcha yeah right i mean i'm not even sure what the signal means other than like you know be ready right yeah um i mean what if it was just like don't worry everything's fine yeah but yeah probably <laughs> not because she no, also does things not. like she looks at the guards pointedly and yeah stuff like no, that. i mean she's definitely yeah i mean like through context she's definitely signaling um yeah, yeah. right uh, Part of part of what I think makes this work even better is Chris in the middle of this thing serving as a constant antagonist. So we're already stressed out about this this thing we barely this conversation we barely understand. And Chris is just continually chiming in at the worst freaking times. Like he just jumps in here and says um, saying they played a role, maybe overstating it related to their interaction with goddess. And it's just like, fuck you. Right. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he's not like even if he has an agenda, I don't see how saying that serves his agenda. Like, I mean, right. I'm sure he does. Like he's it's very kind of self-destructive for no reason, which I guess Chris can be that way. But yeah. he also like that's the fascinating paradox of Chris is that we know him to be um, simultaneously extremely smart and and clever and 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 uh, duplicitous and also like an idiot like 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 at the same time depending yeah. on, on on what exactly we're talking about I and mean, it's like is this just his ego here yeah. or could is be. It, yeah i mean i i think it is but it could also be like oh yeah he uh uh he has some uh eight-dimensional chess motive for for being this way i don't know we'll yeah. see i also like it points out that his, he has a man's voice and i'd even suspected it was deeper than an average and she gets cut off there but like going in this idea of Chris, like trying really hard to be this older adult person. Um, the idea that he would, he would make his voice lower than average to seem more mature, I think is kind of slots into that. What we were talking about really well there. Yeah. But I want to, I want to talk about this bit because I think this is actually hilarious and it just shows just when it comes to Amy, just the way Victoria behaves sometimes is great because like she's, observing in her head stuff about Chris 
and like a man's voice. And I'd even suspect it was deeper than an average. And then Amy speaks out loud. Don't make this harder. Amy rebuked him while interrupting my observation. So she's she's (laughs) Victoria is speaking in her head about something. Amy speaks and and Victoria's like fucking interrupted me. Yeah, (laughs) I'm I'm derailed. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Amy, for speaking. Yeah. Um, I mean, on, on the one hand, it shows that Amy speaking completely turns her like it completely shuts her mind down. Right. Like hearing her sister's voice like makes her brain go and yeah. just stop whatever it's doing like immediately. Um, on the other, it's just like how, you interrupted me. <laughs> it's, yeah. I just think it's funny. It, we, we talk about I mean, I, I think that's great. I also think it's interesting that Amy rebukes him, which she was she was basically in like a subservient role like maybe not literally but it definitely seemed that way mm-hmm. um back when we last saw her and so she seems to be have more power in the relationship now um yeah so that's that's interesting another thing i don't think i pulled out the quote but i i wish i had um because i just think we definitely need to talk about it for at least a second is this this somewhere around here Victoria thinks, or maybe it's later, but Victoria thinks something like, how could I have missed her voice and have it make me feel so uncomfortable at the same time? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that's right here or not, but that is a step. Yeah. That's a, we should have pulled that. That's a fascinating little bit there that she really doesn't remark on very much. She just says it and then kind of moves on. Um, It's, it's, it's an admission of something and that's really complex. Yeah. And I think that the fact is that that's always kind of been there, but like you said, uh, she would never have phrased it that way to herself, admitted it to herself. Like that's, I think that there's an interesting aspect to this that we don't talk about much because Victoria never thinks about it. But like the tragedy, the tragedy that Victoria never thinks about is that this is her best friend for her entire life. Yeah. Until a few years ago, until a couple of years ago. Well, okay. She spent some time in the asylum. I got you. But um, like, it's 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 kind of like how when you break up with someone you you go through the painful phase of everything is bad and then you kind of bury all of the good memories yeah to or at least like you just don't think about them anymore and then they, those memories just kind of go into the into the memory hole forever and you never think about them again because thinking about them is painful because like you you now you're remembering something that you lost yeah. and so i think that she is kind of in that place with her whole relationship with her sister where yeah they have this this history which is not all negative it's it's their whole childhood together yeah and it's now like buried and that that is tragic and it's not something she's ever thought about that way before yeah i mean it, it's just it, it's part of the reason why this this relationship the, the relationship that is basically like the core of everything victoria is going through the core of her character is so complicated. It's so complicated. There's no, there's, there's nothing simple about any of this. And the fact that the book is willing to really sit with that complication for, I mean, we're a million words in, right. And, and we're, we're really like, I don't, I don't know how close we are to any of the book, but like, we're still uncovering folds and complications in, in how these people feel about each other. 
I th- it's great. It's such an accurate depiction of of human psychology. It really is because like people are complex. We don't feel one thing. We feel multiple things at the same time. And a lot of times those things are contradictory and they don't make any sense, but they do kind of make sense. But it, it, it's so complex. And I just love that this book is willing to go there. Like screw the superhero stuff. That's cool. But like <laughs> this is this is this is the complex nature of a relationship between two people. And I, I kind of love it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's where this really shines. I think that's where, that's where this pair of humans really shines. That's where Wildbo as a writer absolutely shines is this ability to portray a fully realized human being Mm -hmm. um, with, with all of the contradictions and things that are going on that even that person themselves isn't aware of, but is maybe kind of aware of. And then there's different layers of that. It's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not easy to do. And it's not, I think it's like, it's one thing to craft a a character that has a real human psychology. It's another to like craft that character and then take them through a story. Right. Because like, I mean, we're people like actual real people, I think would would make bad characters and stories. Right. So you have to like, you have to like both make them accurate to humanity, but also be a, a, a tool to, to tell a story in a way. Yeah. And that's hard. That's a hard balance, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, so I, the one more thing I wanted to talk about is as this whole conversation is kicking off, Natalie is like taken from the group and, and taken somewhere else and being like, we want to talk to Natalie uh, on her own because she has the best angle on the whole situation. And so Natalie is just kind of taken off to the side. And once again, you're like. Oh my God, this poor, this poor, this poor lawyer is just like, I just want to do law stuff and hang with capes. Um, and now she's like being grilled on her own in this private room and, and they're probably not going to hurt her cause she's, she's non cape. So they probably like her. But the interesting thing to me is in this moment, Victoria says, I like Natalie in the paranoia of the moment and the tension of the scene. I had to wonder how much I trusted her interpretation of events. And I'll be like, Victoria, <laughs> when, when are you going to give, when are you going to throw Natalie a bone? Like, yeah. She likes capes a whole lot. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Like uh, it's funny because Natalie is definitely going to, to try to spin things in their favor, but, but yeah, absolutely. Victoria doesn't trust that. Uh, I mean, I almost in retrospect wonder if this is like they're getting her out of there because they don't want a innocent human to be hurt when they try to massacre all these capes in a minute. Yeah, but, I mean that's certainly that's certainly part of the feeling, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean that's my feeling. And that's I think that's Victoria's feeling, but maybe that's not accurate. I don't know. That's the fun. That's the fun of it. We don't know. Yeah. So Amy seems to take really hard this statement that uh, the deal to feed 2 million Gimel refugees has fallen through. Um and then even though even though Victoria guesses that this is just a, a gambit uh, to kind of open up the conversation, open up the negotiations. Amy still see, like visibly is like rocked by this this statement, and it's interesting yeah. because is it is it that Amy doesn't is it that Amy knows something that she doesn't? Like it's it's really interesting to I, I kind of got hung up actually on like Amy's reaction here and, and and analyzing the meaning of it. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so much going on in Amy right now that we have no window into at all, um, and so I, it's it's worth pondering that i mean i just like this idea that like like everything we just said about victoria and this complex multifaceted character i think the same is true for amy um she did terrible things she did awful things and i think she's made mistakes that have made 
Victoria's process and dealing with those things worse over the course of this book. I think she has absolutely done that. But she's not like a monster. Like she's she's trying to do good. And I think this is a moment of her like she came over here. She had a plan. She was going to negotiate a thing that would help people. And she negotiated that thing successfully. And it was going to help people. And then something happened, something we don't know about yet. And now that is gone. And seeing her feel that, seeing her feel the consequences of that is, I think is important. And we're seeing little bits and pieces of that. Remember like when, when she stops Chris, when she, she says, she says, don't make this any harder. And that's a very resigned statement, right? Like she is, she's kind of very resigned to the consequences, resigned to the result, resigned to something that is going to happen to her now. My, my take on Amy as a character at this moment is if she's resigned to anything, it's not the idea that she's going to just roll over and let whatever happen happen. It's that she's resigned to the idea that she's going to have to do something terrible to win. God, that's terrifying. <laughs> like, because uh, because otherwise it's like, well, that's just not like, oh, okay, she's she's beaten down. Amy Amy's kind of always been beaten down. Yes, and. If if this story is building to something, I don't feel like it's going to be. And then Amy gave up and, and uh, left quietly. Yeah. Um, so that's no. I mean, yeah, I I I agree. Um, I I I want to believe that that's not going to happen. But judging by the way this chapter ends, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so one of the Sh- Shinians, uh, Luis who is basically was basically goddesses uh well so, sort of right hand um we're not it seemed like they had a complicated relationship at the very least uh he calls forth swan song into what is basically a trap uh they make sure that she doesn't have any real help uh to, to rely on and then they back her into this corner of admitting that she killed her parents with her power uh yusuf one of the other uh more talkative uh, representatives of, of Sheen basically brags about having killed a young parahuman girl and he doesn't like feel at all remorseful about it even when Miss Militia points out that she was under goddess's thrall. <laughs> Louis eventually gets around to um, uh, maybe it's Luis I don't know he eventually gets around to offering to give her uh, uh, give Ashley the slave homunculi that were left behind and also rulership over some islands and it's perfect. It's, it's exactly what Eclipse Ashley would have loved. Uh, she would have snapped it up without a second thought. And Swan Song says no. Yeah, I, I love this. Um, yeah. I, like, so we just came off a chapter in which Ashley was said accused of backsliding. Um, and, and whether or not that was performative by the rest of Breakthrough or not, it's something that Victoria seemed to earnestly believe. This idea that underneath the Swan Song, maybe there's just more damsel. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and that and then so that idea is then in this chapter immediately put to the test. And it's a test that actually passes with flying colors. Um, what I what I love about this is this is such kind of a it, it's I hate using this word, but it's true. It's a contrived situation. Right. Ashley is being literally yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ashley is li- being literally granted all the things that she wanted. But like it it is contrived. But it's contrived by the characters in the story, right? Like, like right. I think it's it's so it's it's such it's such a good way to get around not that criticism, but that trope or whatever. Um, that like this is an in-world contrivance. They have created a situation that that ties into exactly what Ashley would want. It, it and and yeah, it's a trap. It's absolutely a trap. 
Um, and you can argue that because it's so obviously a trap that it doesn't really signify the true reality of her change that, 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 that she said she knows this is a trap and that's why she says no, but fuck that. (laughs) Yeah. I I don't think it's so obvious that again, that like eclipse era, Ashley wouldn't have still fallen for it. Yeah. Well, she, I mean, also she's surrounded by landmines, right? Like she's, she's been insulted. Um, she's been forced to speak out loud what she did to her parents. Um, they're riling her up in very specific ways. They're trying to upset her and then they're granting her the exact thing that she wants. These are damsel shaped landmines. And the reason why she doesn't step on them is because she's swan song. And that, I mean, it's, it's, it's beautiful. I love it. Do, do you get it now, Victoria? Do you see this now? Do you see that? Do you see the change? Do you stop doubting this change in her? Yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, I, I feel, um, you know, like like we were right to say that that her her change is is real. Yeah, I mean, l- listen, to, like I just want to read this because it's so beautiful. We come from a place of powerlessness. Hold down someone at the f- at the floor of a lake, and they fight to come up for air. But the fight doesn't stop there. We put distance between ourselves and the water. And that's that's beautiful. And of course, it like ties exactly into their their method of talking. Right. Like Luis is like, she told you we liked our proverbs. Like, nah, that's just me. Yeah, that's, <laughs> just, that's just, just I'm, this is just how I talk. Yeah, if anything, that's a damsel uh, thing to do. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I, but yeah I, no, I love yeah. it. I, I, I'm so I'm so proud of I'm so proud of her. Like, it's just you you were tempted and you and you passed. Yeah. Yeah, I like how you point out that it's it's the kind of situation where like it it works it works extremely well because it is it's literally literally a contrived situation, right? It's it's yeah. it's like a perfect dramatic situation. And I, I feel like this is another of Wildo's strengths, which I think kind of comes across in, in a meta way in, in a lot of our discussion questions, is like it's like he it's like he thinks to himself what if what if this trope except good and then he makes that work <laughs> yeah. um because that's uh, that's kind of what this feels like to me yeah because i mean i think a lot of uh, th- this this is what is happening here is fairly traditional as far as storytelling right is you have a character um who is 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 moving through their arc and then they're tempted with things that uh person before the change would have wanted right like that's a very it's a very traditional standard kind of of character beat right um but he has mixed up a little bit yeah and and make and make the metaphorical literal in interesting ways yeah yeah i really love that interaction i thought that was great that was i don't know maybe my favorite part of the chapter this is a great chapter overall i don't know if i I said that this chapter it was not my favorite part of the chapter okay um because we haven't gotten to it yet. That's, I mean, but. it is. It's got a lot of great points. <laughs> so yeah, they they like like we've hinted at. They admit that they were testing her because she had the potential to be the worst of them. Um, oh, and she rankles at that, Matt. <laughs> yeah. I think that's such a good touch that we just look over to, and Ashley's like, and I mean this this ties us back to the first like one of the first conversations Ashley and Victoria had in the book, right? Where she's like, if you think I'm the worst one here, you're wrong. Yeah. Like it. it, it it's great through line. Yeah. And also which, symbolic of, of I'm the fucking best, yo, not the yeah. worst. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, that was, that's, that's why she's mad about it. She's like, I'm better than all these people. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, she, she was right. She wasn't the mm-hmm. worst of them. Yeah. Yeah. And we, 
Miss Militia gets called the best of them, which is yeah. again like a hey, yeah. good for you, right. good for you, Hannah. Yeah, and no one present uh, objects or or has yeah. any any yeah. thoughts about that. It's like yeah, of course she is. Yeah, we um, also we do learn here another little peek into the into the Amy house that we don't really get to see is they say that Amy tried to make her point and argue about what happened and they just they didn't accept it so she she has an excuse she has a reason for why whatever happened happened but uh shin was uninterested in it yeah i love that we're holding back what happened because like like the more time that passes the less i feel like i know like at at (laughs) first i was just like oh i mean she uh she retched somebody else and i'm like well no that seems really um that actually seems minor uh relative to the uh big of it like the, the level of of concern everyone seems to have here like, yeah i mean I, I feel like that would be easy a much more easily fixable than the potential of what she could do right yeah 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 i don't i don't know i don't know I, i'm 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 terrified to find out what it was uh-huh so shortly after this, Miss Militia basically kind of arranges to have all the parahumans moved into an adjacent area, uh, a greenhouse patio, so that she can talk alone with the Sheen delegation. She warns them to be careful, and the whole chapter from this point is suffused with this looming dread of violence. So they've got many guards around them, hemming them in with, with weapons. Uh, Vicky's in this room with Chris, Marquis, her mom and dad, and Amy, which is just the worst like <laughs> like, like like maximally bad for Vicky like it, all we need to to really round things out really round out the party would be if like Weld Egg Kenzie's parents uh Paris uh Damsel and uh, let's just say Mama Mathers were also present why like, the fuck why would you say that that's going to happen now yeah, no. what's uh, what's wrong with you I mean I you? was just listing everyone's like the worst person who could be there yeah. but but now I'm now I pictured it so <laughs> Yeah. Before before we really dive into the scene, um, which we're going to do because it's amazing, I, I want to focus on the setting a little bit here. Victoria describes this as, as a greenhouse patio. So, like, presumably this place is almost entirely glass, right? Nothing but windows. It's basically the most open concept room that could exist without just, like, being outside. And Victoria, it's nothing but oppressive. It's crowded it's trapped it's small there's this there's this juxtaposition that goes on here as she as we're setting the scene and i think it's beautiful the text focuses on the snow piling up around the sides of the greenhouse presumably covering a lot of these windows a lot of the windows are now being covered by the snow um so that's juxtaposition it's like you're free to see outside but the snow is covering it the cold is is encroaching on the space but she describes inside the greenhouse patio as warm that's a juxtaposition she's trapped in this room with all these people but then describes the 15 feet that separates her from her sister as a gulf that's a juxtaposition it's really good right it's like this this insane and and it it matches exactly how victoria acts for the rest of this this entire chapter which is like half here half not like the, the the even the the writing the style of the writing changes how the the sentences are constructed how the paragraphs are constructed changes around this and i just i love it yeah, we get a lot of short paragraphs, don't we? Yep, yep. yep. And another, just to bring back our color thing, at one point she describes the snow uh, piling on the windowsill as being blue, mm-hmm. which, like, I think that's interesting because I think we all know what it, like, like you, you look at it, you look at snow, you know, and, and you you think of blue even if technically it's not, like even if it's just white. 
Yeah. Um, that there's something about, I guess it's the, the coldness. And so we're bringing back, you know, we've got blue coupled with isolation, cold, um, mm-hmm. know, a feeling of suffocation and, um, which, which is often coupled with water also, which is also suffocating. So uh, just bringing back the colors into the That's chapter. Really freaking great. It sets the setting perfectly. You feel it, you feel it all. You feel how something can be simultaneously, um, this huge space between the characters, but feel like no space at all. And yeah, I just, yeah. I love it. So rain opens up the conversation, talks to Chris and Chris is a complete and utter douche. Shockingly. <laughs> um, I mean, the whole exchange is just gold and it's actually kind of enjoyable on, on a level, um, but also painful. Yeah. I mean, it's everyone kind of pinging off each other in fun ways, except that uh, lightheartedness of it is gone and yeah. it's, uh, it's much more barbed and intense. Like every, everyone's talking in terse sentences. Like every, the, the things people are saying is short. No one's speaking for too long. And, and in the midst of it, between almost every bit that Victoria says or observes, she's constantly looking around. She's looking at Amy. She's looking at her mom. She's looking outside her window at Miss Militia. And we see that Natalie has joined her again. So they pulled Natalie out again. So once again, here's Natalie stuck in the middle of all this stuff. Um, and so they're, they're in this room of glass where like everything is exposed, including yourself and and she's just looking around and, and all these conversations are happening and it's, it's so good. Yeah. I feel like glass and windows has, has been a symbol maybe, or, or something that we may have overlooked. I mean, obviously like it's, it, it's silly to say like something that exists in the real world and is ubiquitous is, is definitely a symbol that means something. Um, <laughs> but I feel like, uh, I feel like maybe it, maybe in the story it does. Um, yeah. Well, let's just pay attention to that. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. So uh, Victoria asks her mom if she's okay, and her mom is pretty like low key for Carol. She yeah. says uh, she says she'll recover, but that they're moving slowly, um, which is has a lot of implications to it. Like there, there's hints in in what she's saying that there's just so much going on that isn't being shared. And Sveta is actually the one who is, if anything, pushing. Uh, Victoria is, is not pushing um, yeah. and, and Amy just keeps saying it's handled. Yeah, it's so that's such a terrifying re- repetition there. Right. Yeah. Um, it, and even even the second one is italicized for emphasis. Right. Like it's handled. And yeah. I love like this. This whole part is great because there's this line in here in the middle that says you're moving slowly because dear daughter fucked up and now you're both scared. And the book doesn't tell you who said that. There's yeah. no said Chris. Right. But but come on. <laughs> right. It's definitely Chris that said that. And yeah, yeah. I, I, I love it. I love that like Victoria uses this as a conversation starter because she needs a distraction because she's starting to to dive into herself a little bit here as this this oppressive shadow is is clouding her. She she so her mom is a distraction here, focusing on her mom is a distraction, which is crazy um but that i think that shows how bad how bad she is right now that reaching out to her mom is seen as something that will help her get through this moment Um, yeah and also i think that this like this idea that her mom might not fully recover is something that's been looming over her in a way that may not she may not even fully realize um for for what weeks now right yeah but i mean do you have any idea like what i don't i don't understand i don't know what this could be like she's they're saying they're moving slowly and she's walking not perfectly either. Uh-huh. Well, my, I mean, it's funny that I d- didn't formulate the thought until you said that. But I, I think that um, 
that Carol has some brain damage and and uh, uh, Amy has fixed everything except the brain and now she's moving slowly on fixing the brain because um, she's lost confidence in her ability to work on brains because mm-hmm. every time she's worked on brains, something god-awful has happened. Yeah, and she might have started a little bit and then something went wrong. And yeah. She freaked the hell out. Yeah. Called a stop to it, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Maybe with someone else, too. That, that That's what's interesting is we're not... What she what she fucked up on, I'm I'm not sure if if it was Carol related or something else related. I I, yeah. I feel like it was something else related. Yeah, I mean, I, it could be like I we got little hints at the idea that maybe one of the things they're going to be doing in this world is making people not be criminals anymore. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and I I don't know if the text ever explicitly said that was part of Amy's plan or if that's just like what Victoria assumed she was going to do. And then Carol was like, yeah, what's wrong with that? That sounds great. Um, But I mean, that, that implication has been thrown around. So yeah, I mean, you're right. There's, there's so much. And the fact that no one's speaking of it, except for Chris, except for the guy who will speak about anything. um, And even he's not going into the details of what it was is very ominous. It's very like it, it, it again, turns up that tension dial. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Uh, so, I like this. This is fantastic. So, so Victoria is basically distracting herself by like, she's facing the window. She's facing away from everyone and she's trying to like immerse herself in sensation because she's so close to like literally falling down on the floor. And it says, I reached out for the exterior window, touching glass that had snow on the far side. I traced a finger along and drew in the moisture, a circle. I blotted out the interior the cold moisture and the touch helped ground to me. And uh, it's, it's the, it's black. It's the circle. Yeah. It's the symbol. It is. Yeah, it is the symbol she drew when asked uh, as part of her homework, um, when asked to kind of visualize how she's feeling. Um, yeah. And so we have automatically connected Victoria back to how she felt at the moment, um, right before she was worried about what was going to go on with Sveta and all that stuff. So um, it, it's, it's a great callback. It's really, I, I love it. I love it so much. Um, it, it's, we kind of immediately, like we, we, we feel like we knew how she was doing. Right. But now we've kind of quantified it. Right. We've just like quantified just how bad this is. Yeah. 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 yeah I love that. And, and it's, it's a callback, but it's a callback that you could easily miss. Yeah. Right. It's a callback. Think, you, you could even argue that's not what that is. I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah. But, uh, it is, yeah, yeah. I'm, de- I'm definitely sure it is. <laughs> yeah. Right. But yeah, so, I mean, it, it yeah. is easily missable for sure. Yeah. So Victoria basically collapses in on herself like she's like leaning her forehead against the cold window, basically just like trying to like not be here. But but also this is one time when she's kind of passively tracking where everybody in the room is based on based on, you know, hearing. Yeah. Um, and, and kind of listening to what they're doing. And, and then her mom kind of moves away from the table with Amy and joins her at the window. Yeah, the writing here as she's kind of looking around gets so good, Matt. Like I, like we talked about how how short it gets. It gets crazy short here. Like, Amy, I'd wanted to face my demon and I put myself in a glass cell with it. You don't have to move. I'll go back to where I was standing. I'm stiff, that's all. Marquis statement. My mother's response. Sveta let my mom pass, taking Kenzie with her. Tristan watched. Kenzie listened. My mom stood beside me. The guard to my right. Like, these are all, like, short, like, and they're short, terse quick sentences it's 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 really off-putting kind of yeah yeah and uh, the uh i mean i i love i love the the kind of writerly confidence that goes into 
I'm going to read it again. You don't have you don't have to move. I'll go back to where I was standing. I'm stiff. That's all. Marquis statement. Mother's response. And you it it takes you a it takes you a second to be like okay oh okay Carol stood up mm-hmm. and 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 Marquis thinks it's to get away from him and Carol's saying no I'm just stiff and I'm going for a walk which yeah. is a lie yeah <laughs> because she's trying to get, she's trying to go signal Victoria um, so like the, I, I don't know this is just great it's great it's it's the kind of thing that I'm that I'm always like trying to understand because. While was communicating a huge amount of stuff while writing like as little as he could possibly get away with. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's using structure to tell the story here. Yeah. Once again. And this it's it's such the writing is so disjointed, right? Like, I mean, it really is like disturbing somehow. All of this was like it's 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 so there's so it's so emotionless and like she's barely here. She's barely here. She's looking, she's seeing these things, but she's barely there. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. And so then, uh, you know, Carol is basically pretending that they're just chatting. She's drawing the brandish and the flashbang symbols on her side of the window in fog or in the fog rather. And she says, she's sorry. Well, no, she doesn't say she's sorry. She says me too. And Victoria says she's sorry. <laughs> Yeah, this is that's as Carol. That's as close to you're gonna get with Carol. But like, what's kind of awesome is like if if Carol had given a heartfelt apology, it would have felt fake because yeah. Carol has her checklist, and if Carol's gonna apologize, she's gonna apologize by the checklist and make sure that it's a big PR moment. <laughs> but but her like in in a defeated and quiet voice saying "Me too" is infinitely more horrifying. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, you're right. You buy it. You believe yeah. that moment. And then the, following it up with she's, she's not, not well. well. Yeah. I, like this is this is like this is the holy shit moment of this chapter. And, yeah. and because like, OK, so first of all, we do this thing where Carol is drawing on the window as well. So we have Victoria draws a circle on the window and then Carol draws brandish and flashbang symbols as well. And and, and later we see that she's doing that for a specific pers- purpose, I think. Uh, that's that's my interpretation. I don't know. Yeah, that I agree. She's, She's specifically saying when she's saying we need help, she's saying we as in the two of us. Yeah. Um, but it also links her and Victoria together because now they're both drawing on the same window. Right. Like so that's a natural link between them. And and brandishes and flashbangs symbols are circular um, uh-huh. with with details in it. So Victoria draws the circle on the window. Carol comes over to her, gives her a hug and then starts drawing her own circles. And it's like we've kind of linked emotionally these two characters in a way that like you and I have been talking about how similar Carol and, and Victoria can be at times like throughout this whole story. And the, the book has kind of linked them together emotionally in the scene. And I just think it, it, it makes this moment land so much better because of that. Yeah. You know what else this connects to is one of the maybe most important moments in the book where Victoria is standing next to the window and lets out her force field. We don't know what it looks like yet. And we see the impression of it appear on the window. <laughs> that's so great. I forgot about that. That's a good, I, I that's did a good too pull. until this moment. And I, yeah. I, now I feel confident that it's connected. Right. Cause yeah. when, I mean, I, I, I feel a little bit more confident actually in this idea that windows mean something in the story. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's, that's and, great. And then of course we have like, this is this, this moment is a book's worth of Carol paying off because we, know carol we know how stubborn and 
and ridiculous Carol can be, especially when it comes to her daughters. So we know that if Carol has gotten to a point where she's going to admit there's a problem with Amy, that Amy's not well, it's got to be real bad, man. I mean, that, yeah. that's your, your mind immediately goes like if, if it's so bad that Carol sees it. Shit. Yeah. Yep. And like you said, she writes, we need help. She starts another word, but then a guard moves casually. My mom to wipe the message away. She met my eyes for a moment, then focused her gaze intently on the snowstorm outside. It's so good. Uh, right? It's so good. It's so good. It's, it's chilling. And it's, it's, I mean, it's funny because it's kind of, it's not the, it is kind of a cliffhanger, but it's a different, it's not the, the sword, the sword swinging, right? Like, but in the back of your mind, you're like a vertical line. What letter was that going to be? And you're like, well, that could be. you're going through the alphabet of what, what that could be. Uh-huh. And I don't know. I don't know. But like you're, you're invested. And, and once again, like the implications, the, the, the cliffhanger here is not what's going to happen. The cliffhanger is, is the implications of this. It changes everything. Like Carol, shit <laughs> yeah what, what's going on with amy oh my god what's happening with amy uh they're in the middle of this already tense situation and now not only do they need to save themselves from the entirety of the government of shin being against them but possibly uh whatever the fuck is going on with their daughter yeah i just love that i mean just to harp on wildo being a, a genius for character again like you you, you might say character uh, uh, carol isn't acting like carol i don't think that's true I think that we we know this is what Carol acts like when she's scared shitless. She doesn't act like her normal self. She acts like this, mm-hmm. right? Like that and and that's that's making that's conveying the seriousness of the situation so much better. So, mm-hmm. I love this. I love this. It's great chapters. I'm really excited to see where this arc is going. This book yeah, is me good. Yeah, me too. Me too. Me too. I can't wait. I want more. Yep. But not right now. Because we got to do some community spotlight before right. we wrap up. So, yeah, the discussion question from last week was contrast Wildbo's approach and uh, style in writing dialogue scenes with another storyteller. Um, we left storyteller open because that can really mean a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first answer is from... So I think we should say that like we got less answers than we normally do, but they were very long answers so that yeah. that all evens out um y- you guys had a lot to say about this and i think that's great um so these, we're gonna read more than we normally would yeah for these yeah. answers so the first answer was from fip industries who compares wild those dialogue style to andrew hussey author of homestuck uh, which neither scott nor i have read yep when a character says a statement, they will tend to talk in a punctual, organized manner. Their sentences will sound proper with clauses and subclauses properly addressed. When it, whenever this pattern is broken is to deliberately signal that the character is under emotional stress or their mind has been compromised. Yet he always aims for a naturalistic tone all the same. He favors short statements, sometimes as short as one word, constantly. He breaks up long paragraphs so he doesn't have characters monologuing until they should have run out of air. His characters tend to be young adults, 
He will give them colloquialisms. He will make them drop swears every now and then. They will talk in a casual tone. But the thing is that overall the format will not be that of an essay. Or sorry, will be that of an essay. There is meticulously crafted intentionality in his dialogues as opposed to like, I don't know, just the way people talk. In general, I mean like we can't really put the whole entire thought into a whole complete um, polished sentence. We will pause, you know, we will stop, get our bearings, use crutches. We will realize that the sentence we want to say is not like, you know, working to what we wanted and is like we will have to restructure the whole thing on the fly or something. And, oh, also we reiterate people tend to repeat themselves all the time, like all the time. No, I mean like all the time <laughs> until we make the person we're talking to say, yeah, I get you at least five times before we stop. I don't know. Am I, am I making myself clear? Yeah, we get you. That's fun. Um, on the other hand, Hussey will go in the complete opposite. Regardless of mood or context, he will pull long, winding, almost improvisational strings of loquacious sesquipedalianism uh, going on a billion different tangents while peppering it with absolute bogus silliness and crass swears, making a jarring contrast of the whole thing. His characters feel like a mix between a bratty teenager and a pretentious thesaurus. He will indulge in walls of text that make his characters draw long, overwrought metaphors that they will improvise off the cuff. And yet it will all flow with the wax and wane and winding current of a train of thought being chronicled as it occurs. The results is that they feel like real-life ramblings of a person that you are actually talking to face-to-face, -to, -face, to the point that every time I read his dialogues, I can't help but read them out loud, which will never, which never happens to me with any other author. That's really cool, and, and, I, and I thought this was a, a great comparison because it's almost like um, two main schools of thought. Right? Yeah. Like, like, yeah. Like, it's not just like Wild Bo and, and uh, Andrew Hussey, right? Like, this is two... Two, two different styles of doing of doing dialogue writing. Um, yeah. And, and I have writers who I would say I like in both camps of this. And um, the thing is that both ways are actually hard to do right. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think I think the, the, the one thing I liked, I mean, I think I think the, uh, FIP Industries put uh, put words to Wildbow's dialogue in a way that I don't know if I've ever <laughs> been able to do myself and exactly what he's doing and how it works and stuff like that. Um, and, and I look at these things and I'm like, yeah, okay. I understand why I like wild bows more. I've, I've never read, like I was just said, I never read Homestuck. So I can't directly actually directly compare these authors, but I, I, I don't necessarily in all my stories want to want a reproduction of exactly how people talk in my stories because that could be really annoying sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I, and I think, it's it's funny because we're doing a podcast and I think what we do is actually we even though we have a script, we pretty much talk like people talk. Um, but I just I just don't know if I want that in my story. I could see if you want that in your stories. To me, yeah. I, I, to me, Wild Bows is, is naturalistic in a storytelling sense. So it it, it doesn't it, it feels real enough, you know? Yeah. Well, it, it reminds me um, of of in Blindsight when. Uh, uh, the the narrator breaks from the story for a second and says, "This isn't how people were really talking, by the way. Like they were <laughs> they were talking in a pigeon of languages and like gesturing vaguely and like sharing visuals with each other and and grunting and and like like the, because it, you know the conceit of that story is a bit different. But like yeah, like like nobody wants to read all that. And <laughs> and I can see like what's funny is it's the only author I can really think of off the top of my head who who I think really nails um colloquial dialogue is actually uh my brother um which it may be a strange 
uh, uh, pull, but like, I, I, I can't think of a ton who do it great. Right. Like, like when I try to do it, when I try to do it that way, I hate it. It never works right. Like it, it's just mm-hmm. like, uh, it, it's pretty much like if you just transcribe our, our podcast, we yeah, that like would look morons. awful. Yeah, we, we did. We do. And some like I think the worst comments we've ever gotten <laughs> is yeah. when I'm having a disagreement with someone and they pull a transcript of what I actually said in the episode. And I, I was like, oh, God, I'm stupid. <laughs> yeah. Well, why would you would, attack me like that you, by quoting <laughs> yeah, me? <laughs> yeah. How dare you quote me? <laughs> because that's yeah. but that's that's the way human beings actually talk. And, right. and, and it's it's a it's a tried and true like literary tradition and style that no we're not going to write it that way we're going to yeah. write it as if people are smarter like that's one thing i was really noticing this re- reading the uh, neil stevenson no- novel recently where like everyone is speaking like perfectly like everyone is so smart in speaking so perfectly and that's kind of why you're reading it you you it's it's like uh, uh smart people porn like like i want to <laughs> i want to read like the smartest person i can possibly read yeah and uh and that's that's intentional yeah. And I, I think what we're seeing from this answer, though, is that, you know, some people like it the other way, too. Um, yeah, that, sure. That I think the way uh, presumably um, Andrew Hussey writes his is, is a lot of people enjoy naturalistic almost to a fault. And um, that I think that's fascinating. And yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. Let's move on because we spent yeah. a lot of time on that. Next sure. up is, is Sarah Penguin, who mostly listens to our Reed's romance novel. So rather than compare, compare God, I can't talk anymore, Wild Bow to a specific author, she wants to compare them to trends within those type of novels. Uh, most romance novels don't have physical conflict and tension that Kate fights can provide. So they need to get it all just from people talking. They also need to get the reader emotionally invested in the protagonist's feelings for the love interest. This leads to emotions of the conversation being one of the most important things. Wildwell seems to let you know how a person is feeling and then just trusts the reader to put that emotion to the conversation rather than constantly reminding the reader of the emotions of the words. Other authors might add a lot of verbs to the conversation instead or have the person speaking animate their emotions. While this can be good to get across the emotions, it does break the flow of the conversation, which when overdone can make the dialogue less engaging. While breaking the flow of a conversation can be necessary or even used effectively when, when overdone, it takes away from the work rather than adding. Um, that's some really good points, Matt. Um, yeah, I, I like, I like this idea of the idea of letting the dialogue flow. And I, I agree that Wildbo sometimes like shies away from a lot of descriptive words in his, in his like surrounding the dialogue. Right. Yeah. Um, I I've tried to learn this. Um, I I've, I've tried to, to adopt this because I have a tendency. I think a lot of people do. You see it a lot actually. Um, especially non non professional writers, if you will, but even even like uh, I think there was some of this in that Mistborn book that we just read, um, where it's um, the the writer will write the dialogue scene as if they are describing something that they are picturing in their head and describing the physical appearance of it. So and so says something. There was a pause. Other person looked to the side and then responded first person turned their back walked to the window and then responded like like it's 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 like you're blocking a stage yeah, play yeah it's not the way people it, it's well it's not the it's not what wildbo does like he he's what people are actually doing unless it's a really important thing like smacking someone in the chest so hard they bounce into the wall is um uh or a window in that particular case 
um, is kind of interrupts interrupts what you're trying like it interrupts the picture you're trying to paint right you're trying to prompt the reader to paint a picture in their head you're not trying to paint the whole picture for them and I, that's why i like what wildbo does mm-hmm. yeah i cool. agree with that i mean there's 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 like this fear of using the word said i, I see a lot in um, yeah. people just starting out writing like they want they want every instead of using said they want an emotion attached to that right um, exclaimed, shouted, like, um, or, or adding an adverb to it, right? Sometimes yeah. you just need to trust that the emotion will carry through the scene and just say, they said it, and you'll yeah. know how they said it by the, the words around it. Yeah. Or the words in it. Yeah, yeah. In, in fact, um, I, I mean, I'm pretty sure that using words other than said is usually discouraged because it becomes distracting. Like, I, I really do like framing it as, as like, if if you need to use those words, then then your reader doesn't know the character well enough. Mm-hmm. If you don't, if you don't know that they're angry, definitely don't say that the person said it angrily because they should yeah. already know that they're angry. Right. Right. If, if you haven't established that the person said it angrily, uh, except for that word said angrily, you might've screwed up your scene. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. Next answer from Drew Hayes. And um, leading into this, and while the premises for the stories between him and oh, sorry, so oh, I'm sorry, I'm I'm crappy at reading. Uh, the poster is exe jpeg Windows Movie file, <laughs> and the writer that they're that they're referencing is Drew Hayes. That'd be cool if we got Drew Hayes to answer yeah. the discussion yeah, question. Right, right. Me. <laughs> yeah. And while the premises for the stories between him and Wildo are only superficially similar, they both craft character interaction in a way that feels incredibly organic and realistic to me. But the methods used are distinctly different. Wildo mostly uses mostly has us rooted in a strictly first-person perspective of a single protagonist. This allows the reader to become intimately familiar with the protagonist's thoughts, emotions, biases, and assumptions on a near-constant basis. This makes conflicts that arise between the main character and other others seem much more personable. It and it often leads to very interesting, unreliable narrator situations that provide further insight into the main character. While Drew Hayes, in most of his more popular works, uses a third-person perspective on a mostly central group of people instead of a single protagonist, this naturally allows, allows readers to have a wider perspective on who is doing what and why, from side characters to major antagonists. And since Drew doesn't write underdog stories, these social interactions and conflicts aren't often the main focus of an arc of, in the story. They all tend to have a slow burn of conflict toward a usually definitive conclusion, usually multiple conflicts occurring at once so as to avoid stagnation or boredom. Yeah, I like that. That's, mm-hmm. um, that's, that's kind of um, more in, in the, on a more, more meta level of, of how things are arranged. I mean, definitely third person a third person perspective covering a group of people has a very different feel than what parahumans does. Even if we're, even if we're in a, uh, uh, uh an interlude, we're still in, in close, close third person. Um, um, so yeah, that's, that's cool. I like that. Yeah. Um, uh, me for Mars wants to compare wild Bo to Terry Pratchett. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Both authors know how to write different perspectives well, each character having their own voice, even in cases where they might share common vocabulary. 
i.e. breakthrough with respect to how group therapy influences how they address each other. Victoria sounds different from Aisha, from Chevalier, from Taylor, from Rain, from Vista, just like for Pratchett. Sam Vimes sounds different different from Rincewind, from Carrot, from Granny Weatherwax, from Crowley, from Death. There's a weight to what the cast of characters say, since we the readers can feel the author's words behind them. Both authors do well to show the setting through their characters' biases and language choices, making, for example, Brockton Bay and Ankh Mapork feel like places one could visit. I haven't read a lot of Pratchett, so I don't know any of these things. Uh, both take their time with the, this world construction as well, letting the dialogue flow more naturally with the plot, pivoting to keep up. Both authors both authors show marked improvement with regards to this as well. Worm reads very differently than Ward, just as the color of magic reads differently than the shepherd's crown. Uh, I like those a lot. Um, yeah. Yeah, the, they, they do say that some of the differences Pratchett is usually aiming at a point with his characters talking, thinking, whereas Wildbow tends for more open endedness. Um, this isn't a bad thing for either author, more of an artifact of their intent. Wildbow throws his characters into morally gray situations where there's usually no correct answers. Often it's more about seeing how different characters may react. Alternatively, Pratchett is analyzing, parroting, satiring something. Um, uh, and he uses his characters to highlight the hilarity and merits of these topics. Yeah, I like that. That's. Yeah, that's really good, actually. And I think that's a that's how both writers use that they 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 have something they're trying to do or something they're interested in, and the nature of the dialogue uh, is shaped by that, which I think is is how it should be, right? Like you shouldn't let you shouldn't let your preferred way of writing dialogue shape the kind of story you tell, right? It seems like it should be the other way around. I would say, in my humble opinion. All right, uh, next from Death of the Artist. Wildbow has a very specific and unique authorial voice when he writes dialogue, so much so that I can't really think of any comparable authors in literature. Wildbow's dialogue always feels like it has a point in a way that is not reflective of reality. Dialogue always furthers the plot or feels like it's conveying a very specific point, and that's just not the case in most other books that are well written that are as well written as Wildbow's work is. That is, however, the case in movies. I'm going to compare Wildbow's dialogue to the dialogue written by Akira Kurosawa. Both of these authors have an extremely internal method of writing dialogue. They start with archetypes, characters whose motivations and angles are immediately made apparent to the audience, and then allow them to work toward their goals, either affirming or subverting those stereotypes, uh, stereotypical archetypes. Fundamentally, though, these authors always work to immediately lay the groundwork to convey to the audience what these characters' traits and goals are. Kurosawa famously would give his actors a single movement or expression to repeat constantly throughout the film, something that made, that made who the character is clear to the audience, so, so the groundwork is always there for characters to play off of one another later. This feels to me like what Wildbo is doing when he leads off most dialogue scenes with intricate descriptions of clothing and demeanor. Most authors, when dealing with characters that are pre-established, might not bother with the redescription, but Wildbow finds it paramount to convey each character's mental state beforehand so that dialogue can flow smoothly and without too much establishment. They each leave most of their dialogue between the lines in body language, positioning, and posture being exchanged. Most of my favorite dialogue scenes in Wildbow's work, especially Pact, have paragraphs of description and thought processes between each line. Dialogue isn't a frivolity, but more frequently, a competition of ideals with strategies and goals clashing, but with sparse wording. Well, I really love that answer. Yeah, that's really great. Yeah, I, I never. Yeah, I, and and that's great to compare him to a filmmaker because I I do I do think that there is something very uh like so so uh you know some of these answers have commented on the fact that wild dialogue doesn't sound like the way people talk but the thing is 
the dialogue in movies also doesn't sound like the way people talk, right? It sounds like it sounds like. Uh, oh no, never! Like literally, never. Yeah, it, <laughs> like it, naturalistic dialogue in movies is some of the most obviously scripted dialogue yeah. ever. Yeah, or or it's or it's called mumblecore for a reason, yeah. right? Yeah. Um. Yeah, and and so like that's that's the school of of writing that I think is is most popular, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Last but certainly not least, we have Manukos, who uh, says that while those talking scenes always reminded me of Brandon Sanderson. This is perfect because we just talked about him. Yeah. Uh, every side character, even the minor ones, have a distinct voice and point of view that comes across. Plus, both of them can write so fun and witty dialogues that I wouldn't mind. And in some cases would crave a couple of chapters of people talking in a room and nothing else. Initially, the attention given to names like Missy for Vista go a long way for quickly characterizing characters. So we get a sense of in one word which 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 is crucial for their interludes um and that's great because i think we said the exact same thing during our book club on on friday night in regards to to sanderson's characters and that uh, just their names gave so much so much characterization to them and how they're used in the dialogue that's great yeah yeah to hear more check out our book club released yeah, in the yeah. doof media podcast yeah the doof cast yeah all right uh, and then there was a, a general uh comment that was not related to the discussion question which i liked a lot and Scott did too. Mm-hmm. David Hunt pointed out that Victoria's strong dislike of the Empire 88 people might be more a little, uh, more than a little specifically motivated than uh, we indicated. They reminded us that it was that um, it was basically a kid looking to earn street cred to join the, the racist gang who killed Fleur. Um, so basically, her aunt was killed by someone looking to join this gang. So it's yeah. it's personal. I wrote that sentence very poorly. I apologize for making you read that out loud. I, I hope uh, I pulled it out, but that's okay. <laughs> yes, uh, it was a, there was a, a kid trying to earn enough cred to join Empire 88, and they killed Fleur. And uh, so, yeah, Victoria's hatred of them is not just general. But Nazis, Nazis are bad. bad yeah. But also Nazis bad. But yeah. it's it's very specific to, to yeah. her as well. Yeah. And I like that Victoria doesn't make that connection because no, we, we, yeah. we, we're, not, we're not always aware of, of our motives, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. So, new discussion question for next week. What is your favorite in all of Parahumans, your favorite <laughs> small minor background character reaction? Something as minor and 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 the reason I bring this up is is there were several instances in these chapters where a character is silently reacts to something that is happening. And Victoria describes that to us in her narration. Yep. And it kicks off an entire chain of thought in your mind, right? Yep. Um, and th- I think that's amazing. And uh, I noticed several in, the, in these chapters. And so I thought, hey, I, I know he does this a lot. So tell us tell us your favorite example of this um, in, in, in all the stories. Do it. In, in all the parahuman stories, at least. Yeah. All right. That's all we got for you this week on We've Got Ward. You guys are all part of this show. So feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading. You can reach us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or over at our Twitter account at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is at scottdaily85 and Matt's is at mordinamail. And yeah. Matt is funny. Follow Matt. Thank you. Don't follow I, me. I don't tweet enough. <laughs> I try. I'm trying to bring up my tweet game. It's, it's an art form. <laughs> It is. If you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. 
And as always, you can find this and all the other podcasts we do over at our website, doofmedia.com. That's where you'll find our wide variety of shows. Um, this week, we're having a, a special, a super special bonus episode, Matt, that should be out by the time you're listening to this. Um, you and your brother talked about the new Neil Stevenson book. Yeah, the new Neil Stevenson book that comes out tomorrow. <laughs> so, or yesterday, if or you're yes- in the future. Or yesterday, if you're in the future. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, and, uh, we had a lot of fun doing that. And if you're a Neil Stevenson fan, maybe check out, uh, the spoiler, the non-spoiler section, which is about 35 seconds long. Um, <laughs> I, I edited this podcast and I have not read the book and sorry about it that. It was very funny when uh-huh. I, all right, moving into the spoiler section and I look at the time on the podcast, <laughs> it's like, Oh, <laughs> it's like two minutes. We couldn't help ourselves. I, I understand. Believe me. But yeah, that, that'll be over. It, it is in our uh, Doofcast feed. So if you haven't subscribed to that feed or you can just go to the website or YouTube, it's, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And if you like our shows, this show, Deep Impact, uh, Secret, Neil Stevenson podcasts. You is that can what I'm supposed a, to name it? I haven't actually named the, uh, the thing yet. Just, just Secret all, Neil Stevenson uh, podcast. Uh, yeah, that's the name of it. Yep. Uh, you can donate, you know, a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford uh, to us on Patreon. Patreon gives you tons of great bonuses like voting in our quarterly fan art and costume contests, Q&A sessions, access to live streams of our recording sessions, and our excellent Discord chat. Special thanks this week to new Bidoofs Logan C. and My Chemical Ramus at the $1 level. Such a great we appreciate name. y'all and we appreciate your names. Uh, pizza Hot Dog Lover at the or love rather at the $2 level and Thomas H at the $5 level and also we appreciate new doof troop member Zachary E at the $10 level. Thank you so much all of you. Thanks guys. We're getting so close to our next goal and I'm very excited so we appreciate every single one of you that continues to support us. Yeah. Um, it's it's great. I'm so yeah. excited. Scott's going to make me read a book. I'm going to make you read it. so many books. I know. It's, it's, make you read infinity books. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> and of course, while you're over there on Patreon, make sure you go over to patreon.com slash and donate to him as well. This is his world. We're just playing in it. And if you cannot afford to donate right now, that is absolutely okay. You can instead help us out by heading on over to Apple Podcasts and leaving us a rating and a review. I don't have any, I don't have any ones to read. Still none. It's just a whole month. Oh my God. Whole, I'm so sad. Someone help. Yeah, please help me. Say, compliment me, please. Evaluate and rank me. <laughs> well, that's it for this week's show. Next week on the show, we will continue with breaking. Oh, and I think it's going to be good. Yep. I'm excited. 